Hello, welcome to the latest episode of the Big Football Podcast. Uh, as always hosting, my name's Dan, and I'm joined this week by Paul. Good evening. And we have a very special guest, um, a friend of mine called Stuart Montague. How are you doing, Stu? Yeah, good, mate. Um, so it's been a bit of a, a strange time for us all. Obviously, the Premier League was hamstrung quite significantly by COVID um, over the summer, and the, some of the football leagues didn't even finish, causing continual problems. Now, um, some idiot thought it was a good idea to have an international window in the middle of the second wave of the pandemic. Um, even just this afternoon, Cristiano Ronaldo was tested positive for COVID-19. It's almost as though if you put lots of people together from different countries, different clubs, you're asking for infection rates <laughs> to rise. Um, but the, the, the reason I've got Stu, Stu on board um, is that he is uh, both a player and a manager at lower levels, and I don't mean that derogatory, Stu. And I'm just... Been like we've all heard about how the Premier League has been disrupted, the Euros has been disrupted, the Olympics has been disrupted, but I'm I'm going to be well. We're going to be speaking to you today in order to get a better idea of how it is been affecting football at a root level, and that's not what I mean because that's not a thing. A, a, a grass level, um, a so grassroots level, grassroots level. I can't talk. I, I don't know. Well, I I know what the problem is. I've been I'm in tier three. I'm not allowed to speak properly. I'm not a human. I'm clearly in some kind of robocop situation. Um, so, Paul, this this is something you've done. Um, would you like to tell us about your experiences, and then we'll we'll crack on with Stu? Yeah. So I I did a bit of um, coaching at semi pro level, Dan, initially up in the in the northwest um, and and around Stoke, where I'm from originally. But but then for five or six years, when I first moved down to London. I uh, coached and, and managed a couple of teams in the in the Essex Senior League. So um, I've been out of it for three or four years now. But I uh, I am very interested for this conversation to hear the kind of impact that um, that, that COVID has had on on trying to run a team at that level because it it comes with plenty of its own challenges. Um, even even in normal times, without uh, the situation that we're all trying to live through at the moment. <laughs> I certainly used to, uh, when you was up north, I used to enjoy the tales of refereeing and, and FA incompetence went from, and I, I just used to seem to hear the words leak CSOB every, every other week. Um, so yeah, there was a game. There was a game at Leak CSOB where a, a linesman got um, I don't know some some fan, and obviously there are only ten men and their dogs in the in the stadium, and some fan shouted something on that the linesman heard and took exception to, and threw his flag, walked off up the tunnel, and refused to come back out, and the game was abandoned because the linesman had had a strop. Um, so yeah, that was the famous Leak CSOB story. <laughs> um. And it wasn't me, Stu, before that. <laughs> um, so, can can you tell us a bit about um, what, what what you do, Stu? I know you, you're an assistant manager at one team and you coach another, and I know you still play as well. Uh, busy, busy, busy. Can you just give us um, some kind of information on what it is that you do? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, so, I pretty much knocked the plane on the head now after a couple of seasons towards the end where injury, I was struggling with injuries. And I've just sort of um, decided to concentrate on the, the coaching rather than two things, seven out of ten, rather than trying to do one, nine, or ten out of ten. Um, so, yeah, my experience is that I'm currently assistant manager and coach at a club uh, in the Manchester Football League. So that's uh, step seven, which is going to be semi pro. Uh, 
teams in the Manchester League, ones who are doing well, looking to kick on, get into semi-pro, get to the Northwest Counties. That's a, a lot of the uh, the ambitions for the clubs in that league. And also um, manager as well at the Manchester University football team. So we run the, the teams there as well. Um, so probably not that dissimilar a level, a level really to what Paul's talking about there, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, um, my, my start was in the Northwest Counties League Division Two, as was, um, I think it's now called Division One because they renamed Division One Premier League. Of course, they did. So, so yeah, that, 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 that was definitely, um, definitely sort of similar sort of level. You're talking there about the challenges. Um, and it's obviously it's been like a massively different time for everyone, and it's you've got to put things in perspective. Um, but yeah, it's challenging at the best of times to run teams at that level. Um, but to try to try and keep it going during uh, the pandemic has, has offered up a, a whole new raft of challenges. Whether it be uh, you know get, keeping your lads safe, even getting fo- even getting matches on. Um, yeah, it's been incredibly difficult, but we've got through it, and we're just sort of keeping our fingers crossed. I think now that um, that we'll actually get a season done, and that we'll be able to to keep playing football, and we won't end up being locked down again. Did you manage to finish your previous season, Stu, or was that abandoned? No, that was abandoned. Um, it was interesting because it was, you know, when we came towards the end of the season, uh, we were currently, we were sort of making a little bit of a charge. Um, I wouldn't say not a charge for, for promotion, but we were, you know, we would have liked to have seen where we would have ended up. We were a little bit fit. Um, and it was one of those where you had all the momentum and then, Points. If you took it, if you took it on what position you finished in, then that's fine. If you took it on points per game, that's a bit tricky again. Someone always loses whichever way you do it. If someone hasn't played the top teams, or someone's got yeah. an easy win and then they don't get a chance to have a go at it, something like that. Um, but all in all, it was relatively fair. You know, they decided the teams at the top of the league they got promoted. Um, so it's just yeah, it's just it's. I think it's one of those where it wasn't so much the season getting cancelled. I think we all sort of presumed that was going to happen. It was the the curiosity was going to be when and whether we got another season and when that was going to start. And so because, because of that, I think three seasons just been incredibly chaotic for everyone at this level, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah. And and I was going to come on to ask you about that, Stu. I mean, just just to finish on your point there about the previous season being abandoned, my um my my old man is uh, is on the board uh, at a Northern Prem club who were top of their league um, and about eight or nine points clear last season, having you know put together a decent playing budget and really targeted promotion last season. Um, their season's abandoned. They they didn't get their promotion and they kind of go back to start start again. Level points zero with everybody else and it it, it definitely at those levels it makes a big difference and it and it's certainly disruptive. But moving on to this season and. You talked then about not knowing when your season was going to start. When did you get word that there was going to be a season? And when did you get sort of a kickoff date given to you? And, and how long did that give you to start to adjust? So we we always start our pre-season relatively early. Anyway, we'd, we'd usually start a pre-season in June um, with a plan of, uh, usually it's an August, early August start. So I think if I remember rightly in this situation, we... We left it a couple of weeks later, but still wanted to be ready for whenever um, the league season was going to start. I think we got told towards the end of 
July, maybe, that we were going to have a start. And then we ended up getting started in uh, early to mid-September. So we were, I think we were probably the same as most clubs in that you got lads in maybe a couple of weeks later than you would, but you were still keeping them ticking over, planning, hoping for September, October. We weren't really sure. Um so it, it wasn't nece- that wasn't necessarily too much of a problem, I don't think. The because you just do a slightly longer preseason and you just keep the lads ticking over. Um it was just half of that preseason was well not half of it, but a certain section of that preseason there was no contact. There was, yeah. you know, we were doing unopposed drills. Uh, we could you could get through fitness work, which was handy in yeah. season. Um but most I mean most modern coaches now, most progressive coaches will want to do they want to do fitness work with the ball anyway. It's not just lads throw your boots over there, get your running shoes on. Um so it was yeah, it was interesting how they we, we slowly think if I remember right, they slowly brought in small sided games um where you could you know you could have six involved in a session and, and little bubbles and things like that. So yeah, it was it was different. It was different. It's more I think it's just more every session it's affected now in the the planning of trying to avoid contacts is all consuming. Uh, that that is the thing that you plan your whole session around is how do we even though the FA has said match play isn't a contact, how do you avoid passing bibs to each other? How do you avoid you know, when you're not playing, we've told the lads no handshakes, no fist bumps, you know, all these sort of things. Any anything to avoid you having to isolate if someone else in the team gets it. Yeah, and and, uh, and I imagine that's that's kind of a, a, a constant challenge. And when you were when you were going through your preseason rituals, and I agree with you, uh, preseasons changed anyway, and uh, the days of hill runs and pulling the sledge are gone, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but the uh, the uh, uh, were you able to get any friendlies? in that period or were other teams um you know tentative about agreeing to play matches given the situation was it was it just sort of having to having to play games between yourselves yeah it was just it was just pre-season training as soon as the um as soon as the league said that they gave us a start and they they allowed friendly matches um then that's that was when everyone was sort of on the starters pistol ready to go as soon as the FA says there's going to be games you know there's going to be games games i mean i'd say we're probably um our coaching team are, are quite um what how would you describe it we're quite uh safety conscious we follow the science so for instance we locked down we we cancelled our games before the lockdown yeah we could we could see what was coming two weeks before and we just thought it's irresponsible to keep playing these games when there's not going to be a season so we actually it's a little bit of internal uh, you know, lads are disappointed when they can't play football. Yeah, yeah we, of course. We decided early was that we we locked down a little bit earlier, so we locked down. Um, we stopped playing football before the lockdown. Um, we just thought we just saw that was the way things were going. So we're quite we were quite safe conscious anyway. But you know that once the league says the game, you need to get yourself going because there are other teams in the league that are going to get going. There's no choice. You can't say we're not going to play football. So, yeah, it's just one of those things as soon as the league says, well, you're ready. And, like, you know, everyone would have to stay friendly. The FA have said that, you know, the science is solid. Uh, so, we've got to take that. You've got to take that. So, you've got to look at yourself. And, of course, if you're outdoors and if you're not in contact with people for long periods, because it's quite safe. So, yeah, I think, we, I think most teams in the league were, were quite 
keen to get going as soon as we're allowed to play these. So you were you were talking about the um the 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 preseason training and, and how that regime went. At what point were you able to start moving into playing friendlies? So as soon as the FA gave us the go ahead, as soon as they told us that we were going to be for we we're going to be looking at a, a, you know a September mid September start, I think most teams in the league were um, very keen to start getting friendlies on. Once they decided match play was safe, um, everyone was you 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 could start planning your friendlies almost in quite a normal fashion. If anything, the problem was with facilities at that point because yeah. different facilities have got very different rules. And in fact, that that sort of is a really nice segue because that was that was my next question. I know one of the the challenges at, at, at that level and the lower levels of non-league, particularly and 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 you know amateur football and lower semi-pro football is is finding facilities to play at, to train at, um, facilities that are, you know are, are open at the moment. I know around here in in East London, we've got a lot of the sort of. Um, or weather and astrologies are not reopened yet and not reopened for public booking in the way that they are previously. How difficult has it been to find facilities to play friendly games, to, you know, to, to do training sessions? It wasn't necessarily difficult to um, find places to... We knew where we were going to end up because we were very lucky. The club have got a good relationship with uh, Flat Lane in Manchester. Uh, we play there. They've, they've always been great with us. And the university played at the Armitage, and it was just a matter of we just knew quite early on they weren't going to open in the time schedule that we needed to, to be going, really. So we ended up having to play at a school. Uh, we did play our friendlies at school, and then for the first league match, uh, I think for the, for the last friendly as well, we were back at that lane. But they have a different set of problems, obviously, where they have to initiate one way systems. We still can't use changing rooms, so that's yeah. been. I had to try and do a team, uh, a team talk uh, two weeks ago with the absolute lashing down rain, trying to give trying to give technical information to lads, and it's hard. You know, you've got, you've got to, you can take 10, 15, 20 minutes to go through details and can't keep the attention for that long when people are outside, you know, lashing down rain and getting cold. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was going to be another of my questions in terms of changing rooms. I mean, Again, I've I've coached at places where the changing rooms have struggled to get eleven people in at the best of times. Some of the some of the smaller grounds you go to, um, if is it that changing rooms are just not open across the board at the moment, or you know how does the social distancing work in there? So for us, no, we don't. We're not using changing rooms at the moment. I think partly in a way we've got a little bit of a disadvantage that we don't have our own facilities and we don't own our own facilities in the way that a lot of other sort of clubs at our level that are, you know, bouncing between semi-pro and amateur, they do have their facilities. In a way, that's actually been quite lucky because as you, as you said before, some of those teams that are just at the semi-pro level, it's difficult. Once you've got facilities, you've got bills to pay, you know, you're trying to keep your function room open, you're trying to yeah. bring money, trying to bring fans in. You know, trying to get tickets through the gate, stuff like that. Even if it's only a couple of hundred, it's you know, it's a whole different set of worries for them. Um, so I'm not sure. I presume I presume some of them have been doing uh, changing room, um, but yeah, we haven't. We're as much as possible outside of the match where we've been trying to keep social distancing as uh, strict as you can, so that if if a couple of lads get it, the whole team doesn't get taken out. Because there's a few teams in our league already that's happened. You know, 
there was one on the open day of the season, their whole club got taken out because they'd all been, uh, presumably, because they'd all been in a succession together. So how many um, how many players have you got available to call on and in the in a situation where three or four of your your lads end up self isolating and they're going to miss a game at the weekend is that uh, does that create a problem or do you have sufficient numbers that you can you can pull in and, and find a way to field the side? Well, it's been pretty good really. We've got we've got quite a large roster compared to clubs at our level. We, we run. Three teams, um, and now we've got a Saturday morning team, almost a bit of a better team, and for some of the young lads. Um, so we, we've got a fairly deep uh, pool of players that we picked from. We were pretty well regarded for, um, you know, we can get 50 lads down training on a Wednesday times in the middle of winter, where other teams can only get 15 down. So we've always been, the training's always been a big deal for us. So we've always got, you know, got a good roster. Um, and we've been, all right, really. Other than you know, other than when a whole team have had to isolate, we did have a issue with our reserve where a couple of lads there had it, and because there hadn't been proper social distancing in the match, they had to miss fourteen days. Other than that, it's just ones and twos, and as long as people tell it in good time, we can move people from squad to squad. Um, you know, players who play well in the reserve move up to the ones in ours. They're not they're not isolated team. Uh, so yeah, it's not been too bad for us moving lads up and down. I'd say the difference is with the university team where that's been very difficult because obviously it's hitting the students a lot harder. Yeah. Um, so with regard to you, every single session, there's numerous people who are isolating or, you know, they've come into contact with different people. That, that's been much harder. But the club side in the Manchester League hasn't been with regards to the isolations that's, I mean that's good news I, I've certainly I mean I have coached at clubs where you've you've got the sort of the luxury if you like of, of having a reserve team and sometimes either even a youth team that you can you can take the odd player from and it and it and it does but I imagine there are teams at your level in that in that Manchester league who who basically run one team in that league and, f- and for them if they suddenly do have three or four people go down on a Thursday or Friday and and need to self-isolate for 14 days that's really going to cause them a, a significant problem. Yeah, I think so. One of the issues we, we were um, talking about quite a lot early on is is the idea that if the standard is going to be that you've got two or three players isolate, uh, two or three players that are affected, you're going to then try and get uh, or game postponed. Well, I think we'll see how we get a route for this game over the, over the, you know, over the winter period. I don't we'll see how that's going to be possible. I think people are going to have to accept that I think possibly that it sounds cynical, but there's almost a bit of a competitive advantage from taking COVID seriously. You know, if you if you try and follow the rules where all your lads don't have to isolate just because they've got it, and you you know you've socially distanced around the session and things like that, then you know it's almost a bit of a competitive advantage. Isn't it? And I suppose another thing that, that that's interesting is obviously players at that level. Football is a, is a relatively small part of their week and a relatively small part of their lives. How how much are you managing a group of players whose you know general lives, whether it's their working situation or whether it's a family situation, has been thrown into a kind of into a different a different light because of COVID? Because you know one of the one of the things that you you always find, or certainly I used to 
find coaching semi-pro, especially when we play you play midweek games. You, you, your left back can come in and have an absolute horror of a day at work, and and that can bleed into the performance on the pitch on a Tuesday night. And how does that sort of that general life impact? Has it has it has it made a difference to the way that the players are interacting with one another or, or generally are you able to kind of, you know, leave everything aside and, and just concentrate on the football on a Saturday? No, I, I don't think it's been too much of a problem for our lads with regard to work. Um, it was interesting. I think personal circumstances, you have to try and take them into account. So we had a, we had a few guys who were trouble training and then the first friendly sort of hit them but they didn't really want to be you know cheek to cheek with some guy that they have no idea um, whether he's being careful or not and yeah. they suddenly were like oh I'm a bit unsure about this but yeah, mostly it's been it's been pretty good um, we, we we try and tell the lads anyway whether you've had a bad day at work or you know leave that to one side and come and just enjoy your football and try and whatever you worries after the day you know, take a couple of deep breaths and off you go so um, well, we've been all right with that to be honest. Excellent. And and what do you think? You know, to, to sort of round us off, what do you think is going to be the the biggest challenge? Um, you know, looking forward to the rest of the season, is it going to be if you end up back in something more akin to a lockdown and 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 there's a kind of period where the season has to go on pause, or do you think it would be more challenging to kind of carry on managing with with the way things have gone so far? Yeah, I think we're we're a bit of a of fortune to whatever happens outside the game if I'm honest I think you you know it's, the good thing is it's outside it's exercise outside and you think that's one of the last things to go you, you would hope that was one of the things that would, that would be uh, quite a high priority to, to keep open uh, and keep people active and you know it's good for the mental health and stuff like that um, but yeah I imagine it, if it gets to a point where pandemic is taking over again and they, they want to um they want they want to isolate people uh, sorry they want to lock down again um then yeah i think it becomes incredibly difficult to then lock it down open it up lock it down open it up i just think uh, that would be a situation where it's almost a manageable pile up you know you start to get you start it starts to become very likely that this season goes as well i would have thought yeah, I think I think obviously we all we all hope that doesn't happen. Um, thank you, Stu, for your time and and thank you for talking us through that. It was uh, it was a really interesting um, perspective to get. And and as Dan said at the start, uh, so much of the focus is on how it affects um, those those clubs at the top. But it's it's always the case that it's the people with the fewest resources that find um, adjusting to those challenges uh, the toughest. So so thank you very much for giving us the perspective. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Uh, actually, Stu, just just before we finish up, um, I, I have one question about this. Um, obviously, have have your lads been behaving? Yeah. Uh, have you had any yeah. incidents where it's not been taken seriously enough, or? I think that comes from the club. Really, it comes from whichever club you're at. We've tried to set standards as high as we can, really, with regards to COVID, and we've we. We really tried to make the point that if you don't want to miss a lot of football, like we're we're not going to skirt around the rules. So if we've seen a contact, we won't play. That's just we we won't be getting round it because we need a separate. So we've made that very clear. Difficult because a lot of times working with young lads who aren't that concerned about it still want to go out about. 
you know, especially in the university team. They're good lads. They've been on a been on a pre-season camp for us for two weeks, putting grappling for us. And they've been so as much as possible, but they are students, they are young people, and I think their their levels of social distancing have been slightly different to the rest of the population. All you can do is just like bang your drum as much as possible that bring it seriously with much less football. That, that's one of the big ones we've Cool, thanks very much. Um, any anything that you want to plug, Stu, um, with regards to your clubs? Why you're here? I know. I know um... No need to plug it. It's just it's yeah. It's Govan Athletic in the Manchester League that I uh, that I'm with. Um, I'd probably say if people are listening to this and they are interest they are interested in what's affecting the effects it's having on the lower leagues. Maybe there probably is a you know there's probably a semi pro club around the corner from you. So maybe if you get chance. You know, go and pay them a visit and give them a tenner or something at some point. And keep them going because I think if we're not lucky, if we're not, you know, if we're not careful, we'll probably end up losing quite a lot of semi-pro teams. Um, so yeah, maybe that, maybe that's the plug. If you get chance, go and support a, a semi-pro team for a week, and hopefully you'll be able to go and support a semi-pro club um, and stand on the terraces and still adhere to social distancing. And if they're not going to let people back into um, you know, Premier League and Football League grounds, it may be a way you can go and see some football. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Not for me, it's not. <laughs> no, not if you're in not if you're in tier three, Dan. Yes, quite. Um thank you, Stu. That that's fascinating. I mean I, I always enjoyed hearing Paul's tales of, of what was going on in um Northwest Counties League. Um I, and there was always always interesting refereeing stories. I'm sure I'm sure that you could compare notes about that for hours. But I have a a reputation when it comes to criticising referees, whether it's Northwest Counties or the Champions League. Yes, you do, mate. Yes, you do. <laughs> not something that I've ever hidden away from. Um, speaking of not hiding away from things, it's been a busy week. It, I I thought that we would struggle to get a show on this week, Paul, but. Um, it's not been the case at all. First of all, uh, I'd be interested to get both your thoughts on the uh, the Premier League's scheme of charging people £14.95 a match um, if their team is not scheduled to be live on Sky Sports. There was an initial huge backlash about, against that. That seems to have gone quiet. Um, but I know that I'm, I won't be paying for any Liverpool games. I'm not paying any extra because I pay X pound a month for Sky Sports and I pay X pound a month for BT so I'd be interested to get both your thoughts on that yeah I'm the same Dan I I, I don't I'm not going to pay any extra for I think Arsenal um, I think Arsenal and Leicester is one of the games that they've identified as a as a 14.95 game and I'm, I'm not going to pay 14.95 to watch watch a single game of football that seems like a complete waste of time to me um, I get the point that oh it's only half as expensive as, as if you were going into the into the stadium yeah and it's about one sixth of the experience, so you know it, it. It doesn't really work out. If it, if it, so I'll start by saying something that's not going to be particularly popular. I have some sympathy with the Premier League. 
in that what what essentially they've been doing since the restart is giving away their products for free. And if you run any business, that's probably not sustainable long term as a good idea. Essentially, they have a contract with Sky where Sky pay and BT and and, and BBC as the highlights holders. Um, They pay X million pound a year, hundreds of million pounds, obviously, um, for the right to the Premier League. And that is for a set number of games. So once you start showing all the games, suddenly your cost per game that you're you're selling your product at reduces drastically. And the Premier League is going to enter into another negotiation at some point with Amazon and BT and, and Sky Sports about the next TV deal. And they have a responsibility to their clubs to protect their their commercial product. Um, and, and I think they can see a risk of continuing to give things away for free and therefore essentially crashing your price per game. So I, to a certain extent, I have some sympathy with the problem they're looking at. And I think they have been reasonably good throughout the restart. And then, you know, we kicked in this season and they've said, OK, the first four or five weeks, you know, we will continue with that model. I think 14.95 is an extremely high price point to go in for an individual game of football on TV. I just, you know, it's not like a, you know, I know people say, well, it's the same price as a boxing fight. I mean, I'm not a big boxing fan, but the fights that go on pay-per-view for boxing are the big sort of, you know, one-off events. And I don't think you can, you can quite class a Premier League football game in the same way. Um, I, I certainly think there shouldn't be any charge for people to watch a home game if they're a season ticket holder. I know the bright known as already if you're a season ticket holder, um, then the cost of watching the home games, uh, any Brighton home games that get that get shown that way will be will be refunded to you. I think that's the right thing to do. I think um, that's the model that the, the Championship and the League One and Two clubs have been running. If you're a season ticket holder, your access to the the live game is is entirely covered by the cost of your season ticket. Um, if they'd come in at, at more of a sort of five to eight pound price point for for Premier League games um, that that weren't already picked for TV, I think there's probably an argument that that's a reasonable step to take. I think fourteen ninety five is an extremely high price point, um, and and again at the moment for this first batch, they'd already announced what their kind of their marquee games were going to be, what game was going to be the Saturday morning slot and what game was going to be the Sunday afternoon, etc. So this is filling in the gaps. And to a certain extent, they will say, well, that you know, the big high profile games are still the ones that are going to be broadcast on on BT and on Sky. Anyway, um my skepticism is for the next batch of games that will take us through from kind of end of November through to the the Christmas period, there may well become a temptation to suddenly, instead of it being, you know, Manchester United versus Newcastle, I think is one of the first ones this this coming weekend that's a pay-per-view game. Um, Suddenly, maybe Manchester United versus Manchester City becomes a pay-per-view game. And then I think you're in a whole different ballgame because because that is more than just trying to make up for a a sort of, you know, that that crash in in price per game. That suddenly is very much a move to putting those marquee marquee games behind a paywall. And as you say, Dan, I think football fans pay enough as it is. The Manchester derby is always at three o'clock on a Saturday, Paul. What were you talking about? (laughs) Um, Just one thing I want to... Uh, quickly coming on before I hand over to Stu for his his go, um, I am a Liverpool season ticket holder as you know, and I'm not technically because the club suspended renewals. So whilst the Brighton German has, in my opinion, the right idea, it's not 
practical in, in my from from like any club that suspended season ticket renewals and I think Manchester City have done the same. You know, like that that couldn't be or it could, but it would be a big administrative undertaking. Yeah, that's a good point, Dan. I, I mean uh, I am sure there are ways around it, but you're right, it's not necessarily a simple fix, I agree. Um, Stu, I, I know you've we, we, we share what that group where we go through the trials and tribulations of being a Liverpool fan um, I, I sometimes cause those trials and tribulations in my quest for perfection um, what, what are your, what's your take on the, the pay-per-view situation? So on the pay-per-view for me it doesn't really affect me that much. I'm not. Uh, I'm not a big watcher of games outside of Liverpool. Uh, what with the time it takes to coach and look after the teams and whatever, I, I don't spend a lot of time watching other live games. But as Paul was saying there, fifteen quid does sound like a lot of money to me, and I know they will have had people looking into it, and I imagine they've had a look at the analysis and they think it'll sell at fifteen quid. But for me, you know, even the idea of paying a fiver for something you've paid for is is it's tricky. I'd imagine it's tricky. Uh, something they've got to be careful about as well. You have to remember that the reason why this product sells for so much is because advertisers want the eyes. So if you start losing the eyes that you're trying to sell, essentially that's what you're doing. You're selling people's eyes to advertisers. So if people start turning off the TV because you're charging them 15 quid, that you know that becomes pretty problematic. For, I think as a as a, a business proposal. And I suppose the other thing is, as always with, um, you know, crises, uh, they see it as an opportunity, but they they keep, they always tell you about the size of the deal, the billions, billions of pounds every year. So why, why is someone else having to pick up the burden then of this tricky year? Like, why, why is it never the billionaires that have to pick up the tricky year? So the punter's got to pick it up again. Maybe they should have put a few quid away. You know, down the years, maybe they should have put a few in the bank because isn't that what everyone else gets told to do? Very fair point, mate. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that's true. I, th- I think on the advertising point, uh, their response would be, but the, you know, the four or five key slots that they're, they're always what oh, I say always was that there has been for the last ten years or so of the Saturday morning, the Saturday evening, the two o'clock Sunday, the four o'clock Sunday, or four thirty Sunday it is now, and the Monday night. They are the five advertising opportunities that they sell as part of the deal when they do the deal and those will remain not subject to the the, the pay-per-view and so the pay-per-view is, is is essentially yes it might be taking some eyes off the tv but it's taking extra eyes that you haven't necessarily cut in when you've sold the rights i think that's from the from the premier league's perspective i think that's where they would go with it i think it's i think it's completely fair to say you know why is it the the punter that ends up picking up the the tab um, because it it, it it definitely in the sense that the fans going to be be charged if they want to watch these games. Um, I think that they the worst thing about this is frankly that they really have missed an opportunity in my mind to um, to test out more fully the model, but I think inevitably they will end up having to move to, which is a model where um, the, the, the old-fashioned way of doing, of doing games on TV is not going to sustain forever. And, and I, you, know, you know, Dan, I'm a big NFL fan. The NFL model is where they need to end up, which is that there are four or five primetime televised games every weekend 
that are on you know whatever network it is that has the rights whether that's sky or bt or or, or whoever but then the, the other games are sold as a season-long package per fan base. So if you are a Liverpool fan, um, you you pay a certain amount per year, and any Liverpool game that is not in one of the primetime slots, you will still have access to. And clubs can do deals with that longer term within the season ticket and all, all that sort of jazz. Um but I think that is ultimately the model. And that's certainly where Amazon wants to take it. If Amazon ends up, uh, you know, they, they had obviously two two full game weeks last season and the same this season, they will be a big bidder in the next round. That is the model that Amazon wants to go to. And I think Sky Sports and BT, if they really want to compete with Amazon, because let's be frank about this, Amazon are a different beast compared to the other players that have been in the market in the UK over the over the last 30 years since we've had the Premier League. This is not Satanta. This, <laughs> this is not ESPN dipping their toe in the water. This is a serious, serious player. Um, I think BT and Sky might have missed an opportunity to sort of work out a means of being in that style, that model of market, because that's ultimately where I think Amazon is going to go. Um, and Sky and BT are going to have to try and keep up with them. Uh, and, and I think, you know, that, that's the interesting thing for fans. In future, will it make it slightly more um, cost-effective for fans if they're not having to pay uh, for their football games separate to their Amazon Prime subscription? I don't know, Dan. I put that out there purely as a, as a, as a question because even the BT model, in fact, has football as a loss leader. BT don't make money on the league. They don't make money on the advertising. They, they, they make a loss on their Premier League football coverage. But the Premier League football coverage has made BT overwhelmingly the dominant player in the British broadband market. And that's where the money is made. So, you know, it, it, the way that TV uh, televised football works in this country is going through a change and it's going to keep changing. And I think if BT and Sky have been smarter about this, um, this was an opportunity to start to move to a model that might be more sustainable. Instead, what they've done is exactly what Stu said, which is kind of propped up their existing profits by saying uh, someone needs to pay 15 quid a game or else we're going to lose some money now. And I think they should have taken a longer term view of it. Yeah, uh, that's that's very insightful. I mean, I mean, I don't think we're, we're not going to have the uh, the plus net Premier League coverage anytime soon, I don't think. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, talk, no, no. Talk, talk Premier League. Um but, My dad used to have plus net, plus net's internet, uh, well, plus net's broadband for people. People who don't want broadband. <laughs> if you miss the days of dial-up, get yourself a bit of plus net. <laughs> Good on this broadband from Yorkshire. Um, I, from my point of view, I, I watch a lot of football. I, I will watch Billings United against Lockdown FC. You know, I will watch it if it's on. Did so, you watch Wrexham and Maidenhead last time? Um, I, I didn't. I didn't know it was on. That's why. If I'd known it was yeah, on, yeah, I would have... BT, BT Sport last night. I, a friend of mine's a big Maidenhead fan, so I, I, I wasn't entirely focused on it. I was still finishing a bit of work off. But I, uh, I watched some of Wrexham and Maidenhead last night. Important win for Maidenhead. They lost the first three. <laughs> Non-league fans, we love you. And there's <laughs> our proof. Um from my point of view, if I have an opportunity to have a Liverpool away season ticket on TV, which is effectively what the NFL model would be, 
then that is something that would be very appealing to me and I could get home from Liverpool against Newcastle United and watch a replay of that match on 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 Amazon. And I think I think you're right in saying um, Amazon are potentially going to be the, the big players who change the way that the market works. And I agree that Sky and BT are kind of not holding it back. I mean, things need to change, and we're going to get onto that very soon. But I, I think that the TV rates, it, it does seem to me as though Sky and BT are keeping the handbrake on, whereas Amazon have used the last TV deal to dip their toes and see about the logistics of it, how does it work, how do our servers handle it. And I, I agree. When Is the next deal next summer? Yeah, I think I think this this existing contract has I think two more seasons to run after this one, which means that next summer is probably the point where the renegotiate because they negotiate a year ahead. Um, it's probably the point where the negotiations are going to come to the crux. I imagine. Anything else you want to add, there, Stu? No, just that one thing I was thinking there as you're going through. I thought it was really interesting. But one thing I was wondering about was um, whether where the big clubs lie in this, as, as we're seeing like this week with the little bit of a power grab. It'd be interesting to see because I'm sure clubs like Liverpool, Manchester United, the big global clubs, they I'm not sure how much they how much they want the money from BT Sport and Sky and how much they want to control that themselves. It'd be interesting how I think some of the Premier League might want to go in one direction, the bigger clubs might want to go in another direction. I'm not sure. I suppose it depends on the money's on the table, doesn't it? Yep, yeah, I would say so, and that that segs segs nicely into our um, our next topic, which is the project Big Kahuna or project Big Club or project redevelopment of football. I can't remember what it's called, but it's caused a lot of discussion. And increasingly, I've seen a lot of of clubs. I mean, I know Bolton today released a statement saying you know, like, that this should happen. Um, it seems as though a lot of the opposition is in the lower half of the Premier League um, and uh, Karen Brady is, or someone at West Ham has been briefing the press saying we, we oppose this strongly but West Ham seems to oppose everything strongly given how yeah, much I, <laughs> I, I think you're right Dan I think, I think the reason that the, the biggest opposition is in the bottom half of the Premier League is they are the ones who lose out yes. in this proposal. Now, I again, I, I'll start with a slightly controversial position in the sense that, and I, I, we'll get onto the fact that this is a massive power grab, and that's the reason behind it, and and we'll get onto that. But but I actually think the proposal has some of the right solutions, even if the motivation behind it is wrong. I think an 18-team Premier League is overdue. You, you've known me, Dan, for uh, nearly 20 years, and I've always thought 20 is too many. Yes. I think it would allow us to have a proper winter break in January, not the sort of concoction that we were trying to have last year. Um, it would allow for a proper two-week break. I think we play too much football. Again, I know it's a controversial view, but I think we have to protect the players. The players all are the people who create the entertainment, and they can't create entertainment when they're sat in the treatment room anyone who watched the Tottenham documentary over um the last few weeks the the um all or nothing on on Amazon feels like I'm doing a, a <laughs> Amazon. Amazon tonight if <laughs> 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 you watched that documentary so last season Tottenham had two or three players a week going down injured I think we play too much football 18 team Premier League I support it the League Cup I know this is a bugbear of yours Dan yes the, the proposal that 
that teams who are in Europe the previous season don't play in the League Cup. Again, something for 20 years I, I've been of the view. If you are in Europe the previous season, you should either be, be excluded from the League Cup or you should be subject to the same under-23 rules that they apply in the Football League trophy when they let Premier League teams enter that with their under-23s. Um, the reason for me for doing that, and has always been the reason for me for doing that, is I would keep the League Cup having a European place, but I would like to rotate that European place that doesn't just become like the seventh place safety net for Tottenham, who've had a shocking <laughs> season. You know what I mean? Or for Arsenal, who've had a shocking season. I think we finished eighth, but we, we essentially got the seventh place because we, um, we, we won the maybe Spurs got the seventh place. Whoever, it, it shouldn't be just the safety net for whichever one of the big six or seven teams has had a bit of a shocker of a season. So, in favour, if you're in Europe that season, don't play in the League Cup. Let someone who's not in Europe win the League Cup and have a go in Europe the next season. To me, I think that makes sense. Um, if you want to keep them in it, make them play their under-23s. It's an opportunity to get some of the academy kids a, a game or two. So um, I think there's some merit behind that. The third element that, that was controversial is the... And I think this is trying to be a bit of a sop to the teams in the bottom half of the Premier League, which is that if you went to an 18-team league, you wouldn't have three up, three down. You'd have two up, two down. And then your playoffs would become third, fourth and fifth in the championship, 16th in the Premier League. Again, I'm, I don't love that. Uh, to me, I'd just have 18 teams and three up, three down and keep the, the playoffs as they are. But I can see if you're trying to balance it so that the the, the bottom half of the Premier League doesn't feel too put upon by, by the new proposal. I can see the merit behind that. I've also said to you, Dan, before that I, I quite like the Super League model of the playoffs where you get rewarded for being better in the league. And I've always thought that there should be some reward for finishing good in the championship. And that might be that you only need to play one game to get into the Premier League. Or um, for life. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, I think there must be some way, again, uh, hark back to the NFL, where, where the playoffs work in such a way that the teams with the best records come in later. Um, I think there should be some sort of prize for, for or some advantage to, to having done better rather than just being thrown back in the hat with the team who finishes sixth. So I think um, I think there are some elements of this proposal that I can see sense behind and some things I think we should have been looking at for a long time. Where I am very suspicious of this is the motivation behind it is not about playing less football. It's about money. It's about playing more football. It's about playing football that makes money. And the football that makes money is not Manchester United playing away at Huddersfield. <laughs> the, the, the football that makes money is Manchester United playing away at Bayern Munich. And that's what the Premier League's big six, who, who seem to be um, behind this proposal. I know Liverpool Manchester United kind of were the two headline names on the, on the docket when it came out Sunday morning. But my understanding is all of the big six are very much signed up to this and there have been meetings between just those six clubs is my understanding. Um, the, the incentive behind this is they want to clear some space in the calendar from silly League Cup games and games against teams who've just come up out of the Championship, Huddersfield and, um, you know, Sheffield United and, and whoever it might be. Uh, take those games out of the calendar because nobody needs to watch those and replace them with games that people will pay big money to watch and that's your... Um, let's be frank about what the Champions League is now. It's never been a League of Champions. It's uh, a European Super League Premier Division. 
followed by the, the Europa League, which is the European Premier League Division One, and and soon to be the whatever the the new third cup's going to be called, uh, which is essentially a division three. Um, and that's what they want to do. They want to clear space in the calendar, not to protect players, not to try and maintain the quality of the game, but to fill it with more TV money um, through the European fixtures. Uh, and the second element of what they want to do is this ridiculous proposal that only the, the nine longest serving clubs in the Premier League get a vote. So we have an 18-team Premier League, half of whom have no say over the way the leagues run. I mean, that's bonkers as far as I'm concerned. Um, and while I think there are some proposals that are good ideas and that we shouldn't dismiss out of hand, the reason this has been brought forward now is to create more space for more intergalactic European League football um, that, frankly, you know, some of us more traditionalists get, frankly, very bored with. Um, and and to give the power in making decisions about things like the future structure of a TV deal, we've just talked about that. And Stu's point about do the do the big clubs actually not want BT and Sky involved at all? Do they want to control their own deals? Um, well, if you give only nine of them the right to have a vote, then if that is what they want, that's what they'll get. Um, so I think football. We should be very suspicious of it. The bailout money for the lower leagues is a good thing. The Premier League shouldn't be holding football to ransom in order to get power and influence that it wants back or the big clubs of the Premier League shouldn't. Um, the bailout for the lower leagues is the right thing to do and should be done regardless of this proposal. And I think it will. I think that quite soon, to be honest. Um, it doesn't look like there's much prospect of this proposal passing. Um, certainly... What one th- one thing I will say on it is that the governments have got bigger things to be worrying about than sticking the nose in about the Premier League proposals because it looks to me as though Oliver Dowden didn't read the proposals. Can Oliver Dowden read? I don't know. That's a different question for a different podcast. Um, Stu, I know you've got a lot to say about this. It's not actually something that that's animated me that much this week. To be honest, I, I sort of I I just expect it. You know, who would have thought that? two massive football clubs that are run by venture capitalists um, and hedge fund managers would take uh, would take people at their lowest point and exploit them and, and try and turn it into an opportunity. Um, no, I mean, I agree. I think the idea as well that we look at the big clubs and say, oh, they have to support all the small clubs. I don't necessarily think that works. They're all businesses and you are generally leveraged up to your own size. You know what I mean? You can be in just as much financial trouble if you're in the Premier League as you can if you're down in League One or League Two, just because the numbers are bigger doesn't mean, you know, they can still be they can still be dangerous numbers that are going to sink your club. So it isn't. I don't think it particularly. In fact, they in fact they sink your clubs sooner. Stu is 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 the yeah. ultimate thing. Right, you're you're all leveraged up to what you can you can afford. It may take three months worth of not being able to meet that that financial demand for a smaller club with smaller figures involved to get to the point where the wolves at the door, it might take a bigger club less time to get there. Yeah, definitely. I think that there's been a lot of interesting conversations during the pandemic about, you know, who should carry the burden of things. Should players be carrying the burden? Now it's very much like the, the Meza Ozil situation where he's got a billionaire asking him to take a pay cut. It's like, no, I'm not taking a pay cut, mate. Not so you can what save a few quid. I understand that there's, you know, there's, there's differences of opinion on that, but even 
the idea that big clubs have got to come in and bail out the small clubs for me it's like not necessarily if the, if the government wants to come in and do it because it's an important industry and because some of these clubs are the lifeblood of their towns well then that makes sense to me you shouldn't necessarily be expecting you know Manchester City Football Club to care whether Cheltenham Football Club lives or dies it just it doesn't make a lot of sense um but yet, as I said before, it does feel like a power grab, and it does feel like a worrying precedent that you would give, you give so much power to these big clubs who who don't really care about the health game across the country. They don't really care. I mean, I, I'm not massively bothered about the national team in itself, but I am bothered about the health of the game, the health of the national game. You know, grassroots is the main down there can kids play football you know that's more important to me than whether England gets to a quarterfinal or a semi-final um, and I don't know if if you leave that decision to Liverpool and Manchester United then that's not really their concern their shareholders don't particularly their investors don't particularly care um, whether you know the funding's filtering down to the grassroots and whether the health of the game is good um, so I'd be very very uh I'd be very wary of giving the super clubs all the power, even if they are for some reason deciding they'll let three or four other Premier League clubs who've been hanging around for a bit have a vote as well. I mean, that's such a strange system that. Yeah, I mean, it sounds that sounds like a system as though. Ooh, if we just say six, people will work out what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we say nine? And I presume the system would work, and I, I haven't read it in enough detail to know, but I presume if the ninth longest-running team got relegated, then the tenth longest-running team would get promoted into that spot where they suddenly had a vote. I don't know if that's um, the plan, but that seems to be based on, on the reading. I mean... I, I, I can just see the Burnley chairman <laughs> Just sat in the corner one year checking his phone because no one cares what he's going to vote. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think I think probably the rule would be the nine longest serving clubs get a vote, but if it's Burnley, you still don't. Um, I think that would probably be the rule that the uh, Manchester United and Liverpool might want to go for. I think to pick up on Stu's points because I, I think there were some there were some good points there. I. Um, I'm a little bit more of the view that I think there is a responsibility on the big clubs to to make sure that that clubs survive. I take the I take the point completely that that's not what the interest of their shareholders is. Um, but ultimately, I am a little bit reluctant to say it should be the government bailing out football. I think there's enough money within football that football should be responsible for bailing out football. The government's quite enough to be bailing out uh, within the rest of the country at the moment. Um, You know, hundreds of other industries that don't have fundamentally as much cash in them as as the game of football has um, that that may be more... um, more dependent on government money because it's that or nothing. Um, I think there is enough money in football that there's a responsibility uh, to, to, to bail, to bail, not bail clubs out to the point of allowing them to run stupid business models, but to make sure that there's a replacement uh, uh, funding for the kind of the, the obvious loss of not having fans in the stands, which for the lower league clubs is pretty much all their income frankly um that that's where it comes from i think separate to that there's there's a conversation about the responsibility of of the players in that and and i think there it is fair to say well the players aren't aren't the people necessarily who decided to pay themselves stupid amounts of money 
Um, and and so you know how you kind of break it down is is up up for debate. I think it's definitely not the place for the big clubs to decide how the health of the game should be managed long term. That's absolutely right. It, that is a responsibility that does exist in football. It ex- exists already, and it belongs to the Football Association, who are, and I know this will be news to people uh, at Wembley, but they are the governing body of the sport. That means they have a responsibility to govern the sport. I think the FA thinks it's the merchandising wing of the England national team. Um, but that is not their job. Uh, and maybe somebody should tell them that that's not their job. They have um, responsibilities that go much wider and pumping out um, another series of uh, England merchandise uh, for people to buy. And I think, so, so my view is the, the, the funding of the lower leagues uh, and making sure that there's enough enough liquidity again to get through this initial crisis that we're in. I think there is a responsibility on the bigger clubs there in terms of the long-term health and maintaining a healthy sport in this country going forward. I don't put that responsibility on the big clubs, that responsibility of all association. Um, and they should be taking that responsibility more seriously than they have in the last 20 years, as far as I can see. Really interesting points here, things I hadn't considered. I know that you you suggested this months ago, Paul, how we can clear the, the, the football calendar up, which is let Sevilla just have the Europa League. I think there's no point playing the Europa League. Let's announce now that Sevilla have won it again and we'll, and we'll start next season in the group stage of the Champions League only to finish third in their group and get relegated <laughs> into the Europa League, at which point they can win the Europa League again. I mean, it's just, again... It comes back to my point before about what do they want to clear the calendar to do. It's to play more Division 1, Division 2 and Division 3 of the European Super League. Um, and Sevilla start every season in Division 1, get relegated at Christmas and win Division 2 and get promoted at the end of the season. Um, that, that seems to be the way the system works. Uh, I think, I mean, my, my view on the Europa League is well known. I think it's a bit of a joke of a competition, frankly. Uh, too many given games, it too the much Champions, football. Yeah, given it the Champions League place has has made some teams take it seriously again because there was a period there when even in the final you were getting teams playing reserves um, in the Europa League. Uh, it's made people take it seriously again, giving it the Champions League place. But I think it's a bit of a, an embarrassing competition. The group stage is an absolute joke. Um, I mean, if Arsenal can't get through the group they've been given this year, they may as well pack in and stop playing football. Uh, it's just... I, I almost think there is an argument that a, a sort of more traditional league type structure might work better than than the mess that the Europa League is at the moment um, with the group stage and then that you know it has an extra knockout round compared to the Champions League because all the relegated Champions League clubs come into it, it it's just a really messy system um, and I might be minded if if they want to completely and I care far less frankly about how they reorganise European competitions um, but if they want to reorganise European uh, club competitions I'd have the Champions League pretty much keep its current format um, but then below that I might go to more of a, a sort of actual league based system rather than trying to run a knockout competition that just looks like a, a watered down version of, of the Champions League um, the games in it I mean some of the games I've watched the last three years when Arsenal have been in it I mean the Essex Senior League's a better standard <laughs> 
I think the thing, what what makes me laugh is we we had a, a perfectly serviceable UEFA Cup a while ago, and it was changed to a group format. And before that, we had a perfectly serviceable knockout competition. It was called the Cup Winners Cup, and you know it's just the the amount of jiggling around for jiggling's sake is just. <laughs> and the teams that played in the Cup Winners Cup, Dan, were the teams who won the cup. Yes, or lost in the final in nineteen. Or lost in the final. That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm never forgiving PSG for that game. Semi-final. And we, we, I mean, oh God, we've had some embarrassments in both the, the UEFA Cup and and the Cup Winners Cup. Um, any anything that you've wanted to add, there, Stu? You've been a, a very um, insightful guest. I'm just wondering if that the the view of the Europa League is a little bit of um a little bit of an an English view of it or not because I I I, I think I probably prefer the like the Champions League format the league and then cup format to the knockouts and I was just trying to think as as we we're talking there just trying to think whether that's a particularly English thing because there's so much money in the Premier League that there are teams that end up in the league don't take it seriously and I was trying to think whether do the French teams, do the German teams that are in it, are they taking the Europa League quite seriously? And we, that's why we have a um, that sort of attitude towards it. I'm not sure. Because I think there, there's definitely a place for the second tier. I think there's definitely a place for clubs that aren't good enough for the Champions League to still play European football. I do like the idea of, you know, the team that finished second in the Greek League playing against the team that finished second in the Swedish League. I think there's, there's some... There's some merit in that. Is, oh, it definitely it? is, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it, for me, it's an interesting proposition. And if it's run properly um, and not like not treated like the, the two groups, the too many games, that sort of thing, that, that needs sorting out. But I think there's definitely a, a place for, you know, the fifth mm-hmm. to eighth best teams in each league playing each other in a European competition. It just It's not going to be the Champions League. It never is. But I think it, it could still be an interesting competition. I just think maybe we don't, there's no interest. The, the team's in the big league. Why are you going to try and win the Europa League? There's millions at stake in the Premier League. Do you know what I mean? It's You're just not that interested. You put your reserves out in it. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think I, I've probably got a little bit more time for the Europa League. I think I'd, I'd like to see it. I just have an idea that if it was run properly, there's no reason why it couldn't be a, a perfectly valid and perfectly interesting competition even if it is everyone acknowledges it would be a second tier competition my, my issue personally and Paul you've known me for, for longer than Stu has actually um, you'll know I've, I've never been a big fan of the of the UEFA Cup or the Europa League whatever you want to call it I still, I still call it the UEFA Cup by accident um, the, the issue for me is first of all it's the Champions League and playing it does feel like a bit of a kind of like a, a booby prize but um, the the thing for me is it's just too much football. It 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 seems to me as though the the further you get into kind of like the the Europa League, the more difficult it is for you to manage your domestic competition. But, I mean, obviously there's, there's big problems at United and have been for a while. But the season they won the Euro the Europa League, the league season was going from fiasco to fiasco. So it, it and it just it doesn't feel like that's enough. It always seems. To me, as though that's the way. The, the further you go into that competition, the, the harder it is to manage your season at home. Yeah, I, I think there's some truth in that. I do think there's some truth in what Stu says. Oh, there's I definitely some it's, truth. It's definitely it's, an English take on it. it. We definitely have a view of it. Although I do think prior to them bringing 
the Champions League plaything for the winners, that attitude had started to spread. And that's why they did it. It was because it wasn't just English teams anymore who were treating it as a bit of a second-rate competition because you had the same issue happening in in other leagues where the teams who inevitably end up at the end of the Europa League tend to be a team who might be fourth or fifth in Germany and competing for a place. Yeah, I think it's, you know, again, the top four in Germany makes the Champions League the next season. If you give them the choice, what do you want to do? Win this Europa League for a trophy with no Champions League place attached to it, or rest a couple of people because you're away at Borussia Dortmund on Sunday and you, you need the points to finish for the Bundesliga, and that gets you into the Champions League the next season. It had started to spread. It definitely began as an English disease, if you like, and maybe we should not use that word in these times, but an English <laughs> feeling. But it had started before they changed the, the place in the, at the end. So I think it was going to fix the Europa League and keep it in the current sort of basically the current format uh i would i would scrap the the relegation into it from from champions league group stages that'd be the first thing i'd do that's round anyway doesn't it 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 adds around anyway and part of the reason it feels like a second-rate competition is because it is kind of the booby prize um for the teams who finish third in the in the Champions League group stage. Uh, so that's the first thing I'd do. It'll never happen. The reason that's there is to protect income for big clubs who have a bit of a shoddy group in the Champions League and end up dropping down. But that's the first thing I'd do. That helps you get rid of a round. I think that's definitely uh, advantageous. Um, so so I think there are things that you can do. The other thing, and I, I bang on about this as well, take it off Thursday nights and let them play Tuesday and Wednesday. This, this thing that there has to be a separate night, Thursday night just doesn't feel like a football night to me, and it never will. Um, it tends to be the night of the week that I'm doing other stuff more often than not. Uh, and I think if, if you took it off a Thursday, maybe said the Champions League will play Tuesday and the Europa League will play Wednesday or whatever. Uh, in the old days, Dan, I think UEFA Cup was Tuesday, wasn't it? it League was, was Wednesday night. Yes. And Cup Winners Cup was Thursday. So when they bring this third competition in, maybe they go back to that kind of model. I think if you were going to fix the Europa League, put it on a Tuesday or Wednesday night, get rid of the relegation from the Champions League group stages. Um, and I think that would improve the competition pretty much instantly. And it would it it fix the third problem, which is the too many games, because you'd be able to to get rid of a round. And, that, and uh, your, your suggestion as well there, Paul, um, it stops then, like Manchester United playing a game against CSKA Moscow away on a Thursday, eight o'clock kickoff, and then returning home and having a game away at Newcastle on Sunday afternoon, on Sunday. two o'clock yeah. kickoff. And I think that's why teams certainly at the moment will prioritise the league. The, the Thursday, the Thursday is definitely part of the problem. If they could fix that, um, it would it would help, I think. Because a, lo- a lot of people, when defending the competition, say, "Oh well, you have a three day turnaround for Champions League games," and that's true. You do, you know, if you you, you might play Wednesday, Saturday, or, or or sometimes Tuesday, Saturday, and and it it just feels a lot longer. But the the, the problem you've got with the, the Europa League is like the, the game finishes at quarter to ten, and you've got travel. Um. You know, it, it, it depends on who you, if, you, if you've been drawn against FC Chisinau or something like that, then you've got one hell of a journey back the next day. 
Yeah, I, I think it would help. I, I think there are things to do to fix the competition. I completely agree there is still a place for teams who are not quite good enough to be in the Champions League being in Europe. There is definitely still a place for that, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I'm not convinced with the current format. To me, you either have to go one way or the other. You either do it standing almost on its own two feet and not being a Division 2 to the Champions League and not having the relegation system and not being played on a Thursday night as an afterthought. Or you say, no, 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 the Champions League is where we're at. The route essentially is a feeder system for the Champions League. And if you're going that route, that's where I think I'd be inclined to say, get rid of the knockout bit and just have some sort of league system. Or, or maybe a league system with a, a semi-final and a final that's played at the end of the season in a one-week period or something like that. You really did like that knockout competition didn't you for the Champions League I like League? that I like that knockout competition at the end of the Champions League I much preferred that to two legs I know there are mixed views on that a lot of people like the two-legged system I've long since outdated the idea that okay well you play two legs and it's home and away and there's away goals because traveling is difficult I mean it is at the moment because of COVID <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but normally now you get on you, you know you get on a plane and and you can play as a used to film Europe it's not like it's not like when when teams started playing in Europe in the 50s and 60s, when, I mean, you say a three-day turnaround, Dan, it took them three days to get home sometimes. <laughs> so so I think I think it is a different world. And I, I'd probably play the Champions League in a slightly slower time if, again, if almost putting me in charge of football, which won't happen. I'd play the Champions League group in a slightly slower time the first half of the season and into the second half. I'd maybe have one two-legged knockout round to qualify you for the last eight, and then I'd play the last eight over the last fortnight of the season. Bring the FA Cup final forward, finish your domestic seasons, you know, first or second weekend in May with your, with your cup finals, and then have, have 10 days and go and play your, your Champions League um, last eight. I, I, I thought it worked really well. I thought it was a good format, um, and I don't think you need to. Again, I'm all about trying to reduce the number of games players are playing. So I, I will quite happily get rid of the two legs, play them on neutral grounds. Bob's your uncle. No wonder you want to uh, play less games with your Ammon um, plug-in today. <laughs> uh, any, any, anyone for anything else? Any, anything that we want to? Any, anything you want to add to that, Stu? No, I just thought it was interesting. The idea of um, I quite like the two-legged affair. I quite like uh, at the absolute elite level. I do quite like home and away. But I was just thinking there about if you were going to try and make the Europa League viable, it's difficult, isn't it? Because the Thursday, there are so many problems with it, um, especially like I've seen uh, some numbers on recovery. Like it's, it's very difficult for players. It's very difficult for coaching staff to get players turned around and recovered and stuff. Um, but then if you put it on the same night as the Champions League, it, it, you know, it doesn't get any attention. So. Yeah. Whether, I don't know whether it'd be, it'd be almost if you needed to go in the opposite way to Paul's league system to make it a little bit mad to make it interesting, almost make it a, you know the European FA Cup where it's a one that you know it's a knockout, it's got to be decided on the night, penalties on the night or something something a bit bonkers, you know, just to make it a little bit interesting. Other than a slightly worse European competition, yeah, I'd, I'd love that. I mean, that's a great idea. Let's do that. <laughs> European FA Cup, really, isn't it? You know? yeah, yeah. Can, can, can I just point out that if we're making it the FA Cup, can we just make sure that Danny Murphy and Jermaine Jenner are nowhere near it? <laughs> um, yeah, we, we definitely can. I've got, I've got one. Um, 
one AOB, Dan, before we finish tonight, which is I think we talked on a previous podcast about um, the fact that Gareth Southgate really hates Jack Relish. He does. And can we just talk again about the fact that uh, Gareth Southgate really hates Jack Relish to the point where when he was asked about him not playing against Belgium um, the other night, Gareth's answer was to say, well... Um, uh, Jack's proven himself now against the lower level of international competition. The next step is for him to prove he can do it against the best teams. I, I agree with that, Gareth, but he can't do it against <laughs> the best teams him. if you don't play him. <laughs> you know, how's he supposed to prove he plays Belgium from the bench? Uh, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not arguing one way or the other about whether Jack Grayley should or shouldn't be in the England team. People have different views on that. Um, but Gareth Southgate does not want to have to pick Jack Grealish. He's picking him under Southgate. Absolutely blatantly obvious. Yes. <laughs> but and, and I think Jack Grealish is a, a, a really good player as well. Well, he's literally just done it against Liverpool, hasn't he? So, I mean, I, I don't, never understand this when they go, yeah, he's got to test himself at the international level. What level is that? It's, you know, I mean, you've got semi-pro lads playing in some of the games. Like he did test himself at the absolute top level, which was, you know, Liverpool, and he looked pretty decent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, the international competition is nowhere near the standard of the Champions League games. I mean, that's just a matter of absolute fact. And and as you say, Jack Grealish has just done it against a team who have been in two of the last three Champions League finals and won the Premier League. Canter last season, so if he can do it against them, he'll probably be okay against Wales. Um, you know, <laughs> and even Belgium, uh, who continue to sort of flatter to deceive every time you watch them. So, yeah, I think um, I think it's just worth pointing out. I I think Southgate knows he's a really good player. I just don't think he's Gareth's type of person, <laughs> and yeah. I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah, I think I think uh, Gareth Southgate prefers Harry. I will run through a brick wall for you, Ken. Really, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, he, he likes kind of old school pros, pros, uh, people who aren't really going to, you know, aren't interested in anything other than fall and, and just turn up and train well and do their job and don't cause a fuss and go home. And Jack Grealish has got a bit of devil in him, hasn't he? He's got a bit of personality. He's got a bit. I think it's part of the reason he's a great player. Yeah, you need a bit of that, don't you? He, he can take a kick and get up and smile at someone and think the next time I'll just I'll just ruin him by by going past him. Um, I, I think that that isn't really that bit of spark. And he's had one or two issues off the field, as we know. I, I don't think that really is what Gareth thinks he's looking for. Yeah, it, it's it's bizarre to me because, some. I mean, I've got time for Gareth Southgate. And I, 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 it's kind of not rekindled my interest because I just don't like other football fans enough, too much, basically, to the extent where like, I, it, I struggle to get behind the England team. But Southgate has kind of made me feel a bit peace because I, I, just, I just like him and he seems like a decent man but yeah he, he really doesn't like um, Jack Grealish and I, I think Grealish is a really good player I, I would have Grealish at Liverpool without too many questions to be honest I'd have my Arsenal I thought if we could off- offload the, the Turkish German then we should have tried to buy Jack <laughs> Grealish um, but, but no such luck Yes, it's, it, it's, it was not a seller's market, really, the last transfer window, was it? It was more of a you market. need a more You need more than a seller's market to get someone to buy Mesut on his salary, Dan. Oh, now, now. And, and I happen to know that Stu rates Ozil's figures. <laughs> whoa, 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 one minute. That was a total, that was just an argument about whether he was, at one point, an elite creator. And Which I think was. I proved that Yeah, he, he was. was. He was, yeah, no, he absolutely was. Um, it, it seemed to go uh, wrong he, for Ozil when he signed the new contract, 
which is a Brendan Rodgers problem normally. So but... yeah, so we we should never sign him to that contract. It was a panic move. Um, it, it was a oh my god, it's going to look terrible if Sanchez and Ozil both walk out in in the space of six months. Uh, but I don't think we should ever assign him to that contract. I also think actually I don't know if anyone's seen the Arsene Wenger interview today's autobiography is about about to be published and he's he's been doing the media rounds. I thought he had a really good point about Meza Ozil, which is just that the tactics of modern football have moved away from Meza Ozil. Um, in that everyone wants to play with the high energy, high press. That's the style Arteta's trying to embed at Arsenal. It's, it's obviously the way Liverpool style. play. It's the way Man City play. There's no place in, there's no place in that system for Mesut Ozil. Um, and it's, it's a shame because he is still a, a, an extremely talented, if even at his best, a little bit lazy and lethargic footballer. Um, and I, I just think the tactics of the way the teams at the top are all trying to play each other now. Um, a, there's an argument about is it a bit boring and should we not have a bit more variety in the way that teams are trying to trying to set up? But equally, um, it seems to have moved a little bit away from, from us. I thought it was a really good observation Wenger made. Normally when Arsene Wenger speaks, it's interesting. Um, certainly that's one book I'll be picking up. And no, I'm not being paid by Arsene Wenger. <laughs> Just, uh, I, think, I think you can get Arsene Wenger's autobiography from uh, Amazon, Dan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stu, is there anything else you want to add? No, no, that's fine. Just a uh, pleasure to be on, gents. Pleasure to have a chat with you. Yeah, it's been really interesting. Um, certainly, I, I really enjoyed you and Paul um, discussing your uh, lower league experiences. I don't, I don't like to say lower league. It sounds so generic and, and disrespectful, but um, it, it's grassroots football. I finally remembered the word grassroots as well. Um, it's... It's what keeps the game going. Um, certainly, I, I look forward to your um, your because Stu gives us a summary on the WhatsApp group every week of uh, of what he's been up to. Um, can you finish with that story, Stu? A, this story is work is just has had uh, me in pieces this weekend. I mean, I'll, I won't I won't divulge to don't too name many, names. Yeah, I won't divulge too many details. It's just. An incident um, that occurred in a match at our level where um, uh, a lad has been, uh, managers looked to substitute him, realised he hasn't got any subs left. Forward. Which in itself <laughs> is concerning and funny. <laughs> uh, to be fair, there are different, um, you get more subs in the league and it was, you know, that's fine. Um, so he's gone, to, he's gone to hook him off, forward's not impressed, 10 minutes later, scores a goal. So he goes over to the manager to show how displeased he was, takes his top off, swings it round his head, and also starts to do something far more revealing um, and a, in a sub-this-type attitude. <laughs> uh, so, yes, a red card, and uh, I think uh, the club have been letting it have let him go. Um, so, yeah, that's a very quick way to exit a club. My favourite non-league uh, um, substitution story, Dan, was uh, was in a game where there was a, an extremely serious injury to a player. It, it was not a funny uh, setup. A very, very serious broken leg. It stopped the game for about 20 minutes while while we waited for an ambulance to turn up. Players been, um, you know, loaded onto a uh, onto a stretcher, wheeled across the pitch into a waiting ambulance. Paramedics there, flashing blue lights. The game's about to restart, <laughs> and I'm standing there 
with the substitute at the halfway line to bring the sub on for the player who's seriously broken his leg. <laughs> the linesman, and this is a God's honest truth, the linesman said to me, who's coming off? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Right, it's been an absolute pleasure, gents. Yeah, really good fun. Really, um, really thank you for your time, Stu. Really interesting. Really good fun. Um, so, spread the word. Please continue to, to share information about the podcast. Um, please subscribe. You can do so via Podbean. And remember, we are on iTunes. Um, thank you very much, gents. It's been a pleasure. And we'll be back again next week. <laughs>